Boy, you guys are rowdy this morning, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well, welcome. Uh, for those of you who are new to Bethel Church, we're glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for coming to join us in worship. And uh, uh, I trust that uh, you will be warmly welcomed and greeted, and I trust that you will have an encounter with the living Christ this morning. Uh, I have a great announcement uh, to make for you. You guys know that we have been... Uh, for a long time now, working on our capital campaign to raise money for our uh, expansion project. And uh, our goal, as we have um, uh, laid it out to you, is $5 million, which is an ambitious, humbling, sobering amount of money, except that we have a pretty powerful God. Uh, We have, uh, this past week on Friday, we had our leaders' uh, commitment, where we gathered together some of the positional well, positional leaders, those that have been maybe elected to serve in certain offices, and some of the ministry leaders. And we had 35 responses um, to that gathering on Friday. And I want you to know this. Your leaders, those who serve you here at Bethel Church, from that group, $857,000 was committed to this project on Friday. And I hope that stirs your heart. I hope you see a group of leaders and servants in this church who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are not satisfied with the status quo, and who want to see the gospel go forward and see new people reached in this community. I hope that stirs your heart. And, of course, we did that first for a couple of reasons. One, because we want you to know that what we are asking for, what is challenging, what is ambitious, we want you to know that we are committed ourselves. We would not ask something of you that we ourselves are not willing to do. And so we want to lead by example. And then secondly, we want you to know it's nearly your turn. <laughs> uh, next week, next Sunday, uh, is Commitment Sunday, where we are going to ask everybody to take a pledge card. And as a part of the service, as a part of the worship that we're going to participate in together, we're going to corporately make a sacrifice to the Lord. And we're going to commit what we can to this project Uh, going forward. So that's next week. You've been warned. You've been prepared. I hope you've been inspired. And um, so those cards, if you want to take a glance at them, they're out in the foyer. You can grab one. You can take it home and begin working through it and praying through it. Pastor Keith will give you some more instructions by the end of the service. Uh, But isn't that an outstanding thing to celebrate this morning? I hope you're encouraged by that. Uh, I want to... uh, Now we want to turn to the scriptures. We're going to go to John chapter 21. Um, This is my favorite chapter of all of the scriptures. This is it for me. If I were to be stranded on a desert island, if I were to be exiled on a warm desert island, which sounds really good this morning, (laughs) this would be the passage that I would want with me. A little sunscreen in this chapter of scripture. So uh, let's pray. And uh, ask for the Lord's help as we dive into his word. Father, life presents many challenges and circumstances to us that seem insurmountable, that seem impossible. Uh, But we are reminded this morning as we gather together as the people of God, those who were estranged because of our sin and our rebellion, that nothing is impossible with God. By your grace and by your mercy, because of your love and not at all because we deserved it, you drew us to yourself 
You rescued us. You took our sin away from us and poured it into your son and crucified it at the cross that it might be killed. And then you raised him from the dead. So Lord, we carry around with us, as the Apostle Paul says, we carry around within us the death of Christ daily. But we also carry around with us the life of Christ. We want to know, we do know, and we remind ourselves that sin no longer has its hold on us. Because you have released its grip and we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are free to live for the glory of our King. God, this morning I pray that as we look at the life of Peter and we see the mercy and the grace of God in his life, that it will quicken our hearts to think deeply and to feel deeply and to rejoice greatly about what you have done for us as well. God, give us full attention now to your inspired and errant word and teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you'd open your Bibles to John 21, that's where we are this morning. And uh, if you'll open your bulletin, there's a handout in there that I hope will help you, or at least uh, if it doesn't help you follow along, at least it will help you uh, jot notes to your neighbor about how the Seahawks will win today. And, but um, I couldn't resist. I was trying to resist all morning, and I couldn't resist. Hopefully it will help keep all of us focused uh, this morning. The title, as you can see at the top of the handout, is Good Enough for God's Work. Good Enough for God's Work. And of course, I'm making a little bit of a play on words here. You've probably all heard the expression, good enough for government work, or something of that sort. And usually a person is using that phrase... um, to maybe justify or excuse some sloppy work that they're doing because they themselves have no personal personal investment in the project or they, you know, it's other people's money, other people's project, other people's thing and so their effort is maybe sloppy. Uh, But I'm using this title this morning to surface a question I think that we all have from time to time and that is this, am I good enough for... God's work. Can he use me? What what possible thing could I bring to the Lord that he might be able to use? And I think there are plenty of different concerns and questions that people might have. Maybe you think I'm too young. I'm a teenager. I'm in junior high or high school or college or whatever passes for young in your mind. And you think what could God do with my youthfulness? Or maybe you think, you know, I haven't been a Christian that long. I'm, I'm just a rookie. I'm sort of getting started in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I can't imagine that anybody would listen to me or my witness for Christ. I'm just new at this. Uh, maybe for you, you have a past. Maybe there's something about your life that is difficult. Something you're ashamed of. Something you're still struggling with. Maybe there was a season of sinful indulgence in your life and it still has consequences that grip you. Uh, Maybe there's a divorce in your past and you think that it has limited what you can do in your future. Maybe there's some failing that you have yet to feel forgiven for or move past. 
maybe your past is holding you up. And you ask the question, am I good enough for God's work here? Uh, maybe for you, you feel like, you know, I don't have any training. I got no formal training, haven't been to seminary, wasn't elected to anything. What right do I have? What credentials do I bring to be a servant for the Lord? Uh, probably for some of you, you think, I don't have the personality for it. Ministry is kind of a people thing. It seems like, you know, outgoing folks with big personalities, those are the ones who do ministry. I'm an introvert. I like my quiet. I like my space. I'm finding more and more that to be me. Can I just tell you that? I'm, I'm the guy at the library now going, shh. I, the library's become quite loud. This is another topic. I'm getting off. <laughs> or maybe this is a good segue to the next point. Maybe you are feeling like, I'm too old. I'm too old. I don't feel relevant anymore. I don't know what's going on in the culture. There's all kinds of new things. It seems to be driven by technology, and that's not my favorite, my favorite deal. I'm tired. I've given my investment. I've spent myself already it's time for others so but i think the bottom line is whatever the reason whatever rationale we might bring to it i think virtually every person in this room probably for one reason or another would ask the question how can i serve the lord how can the lord use me Uh, and so that's our first point this morning sometimes we wonder If we're good enough for God's work. And in John 21, we pick up on the story of Peter. A man who at this particular time in his life had every reason to ask this same question. And so we get to journey with him through this process of getting this question resolved. And we get to benefit from it ourselves. Look at John 21 verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night, They caught nothing. By the way, that seems to be frequently the story with the disciples. They caught nothing. They seem to be poor fishermen. But pertinent backdrop behind this this story that you need to know if you're coming to it late or if your memory is, is bad. What you need to know is that Peter, of course, has denied knowing Christ. Uh, The background, again, is that uh, it's been about three years since Peter first got the call from Jesus to follow him. Jesus came along and interrupted his life and literally got in his business when he got in his fishing boat and told him, put out from sea a little bit or put out from the shore a little bit. And, uh, And he showed Peter the power of God through a miraculous catch of fish something that a fisherman would uniquely recognize. And um, the result was that Peter was on the hook. And he told him, Jesus told him, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, And Peter, as you might know, um, really from that point on became Jesus' number one disciple. He was sort of the go-to guy. He was the leader among leaders. He was the spokesman for the other disciples. He was privileged to be a part of some unique things in Jesus' life and ministry, one of which was the transfiguration. 
Uh, it was Peter who made the great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, uh, which seemed to please Jesus so much. Uh, at one point in, in, in Peter's uh, discipleship and following Christ, he had enough confidence surging through his veins that he made this statement, that he told Jesus that he would be willing to die for him. And I think that the memory of that boast at that particular time is haunting him now as we find him. Because the same night that he made that bold profession of his willingness to die for Jesus, Jesus informed Peter, actually, before the rooster will crow in the morning, you'll deny me three times. And what probably seemed unbelievable and impossible to Peter is what, in fact, happened. Everything transpired just as Jesus predicted. He denied his Lord. He abandoned Jesus in his hour of trial. Peter, who had vowed to follow him everywhere, even pledging his life as a sacrifice, denied knowing him that same night. Uh, Luke's account gives us this brutal detail. It says that at that moment, Jesus looked up at Peter, and Peter went and wept bitterly. Um, I find it interesting here that Peter goes out fishing. Um, And I can't be sure. I'm speculating a little bit here, but... I think it's just because this is something that he can do without any effort, mindlessly. It's routine. He knows it. This is his go-to task, his go-to chore. When life's running away with him and he's crunching on the difficulties and the emotional pain of what's occurred, this is what he can sort of go to. You guys have these things. For some of you, it's knitting. Okay, and you just... You just knit away. The tightest sweater in history, right? (laughs) Stitches are tight because you're stressed out. Uh, Some of you do mad cleaning. We have any mad cleaners in here? Good. (laughs) I need need help from a couple of you because my office is in disarray. (laughs) Um, For some of you, maybe it's riding your bike. You're you're just going to crank it out. Or you go for a ski. Uh, or you mow the lawn, or you lift the weights. For me, my go-to, splitting wood. Do we have any other splitters out here? Oh, this is good for your soul right here. This is sanctification at work. Uh, this is, something's going on, and I'm wrestling through it. Pastor Mark said, what? You know, I go out and split the wood. <laughs> or, the auto repair is going to cost me how much? We go out, and we split the wood. You know? Um, we have another elder moving away, leaving town, go out and split the wood. That's my go-to task. It's how I get some of my angst out. And when I put myself in Peter's shoes here as one who has been an outspoken follower of Christ and then having denied knowing Christ, even watching him be killed and even the comfort of seeing him resurrected, I think, would still leave him with some painful questions. I mean, I imagine he's, he's thrilled that he's alive. He's thrilled that he's risen. He's thrilled that it sort of proves him to be God, as he said that he was. But I think he's still wrestling with some of these kinds of questions. What is Jesus going to do with me? Will he want any part of me at this point? Does he still love me? I'm a failure. I let him down. I came up short. What possible use can I be for the mission of God now? I'm an embarrassment 
to my Lord and my Savior. And so I think this is what is swirling around his mind. I think his emotions are raw. I think Peter simply needed something to occupy his hands to pass the time. And I think catching fish was as good as anything else. It's what he knows. But all along as he's doing it, I think he's asking, am I good enough for God's work? Do I have any kind of future with him? And so with this question in mind, I think it's really beautiful to see what Jesus does next. The way that he reassures Peter and then restores him to a place of ministry. First of all, what he does is Jesus reminds Peter that he was called. And let me show you how he does this. Look at verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And I think he was chuckling under his breath, but no, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, here's the question I ask you, Bethel. Does this event sound familiar? I hope that it does. And I think many people fail to recognize that there wasn't just one miraculous catch of fish. There was two. There were two. With one, Jesus would call Peter into ministry. He would show him his power. He would reveal himself as deity and call Peter alongside to what he had for him. And with the second miraculous catch, he would call Peter to continue on in ministry. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's beginning to show Peter, in a sense, that he is good enough for God's work. Or at least where he doesn't measure up, God will fill in the gaps. Look at verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. He jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, which I, I would think is over the quota there at the day. But, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here's the question I have. Why does Jesus orchestrate this miraculous catch? I think the first reason might be fairly obvious. He did it to identify himself. They're out in their boat. They're doing the task. And I think he in a very special. I mean he could have just said hey it's Jesus I'm over here. But he showed him right in a pretty special way. It's me I'm over here. And so I think one of the things was just simply to identify himself. But more than just being dramatic here, I believe Jesus is reenacting a very special moment in Peter's life. And by so doing, he is reaffirming his calling on Peter's life. Uh, The miraculous catch recorded in Luke 5, that was a very special time for for Peter when he was called into ministry. And remember, after this huge catch of fish, what was it that Peter said? Sweet! I'm going to be rich. Jesus, join my business. He didn't. 
He left it all because he knew that he was in the presence of God. He actually said, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, no, you come with me. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so the first miraculous catch, I believe, was the catalyst for Jesus to call Peter into ministry, recognizing that it wasn't going to be based on his qualities and his credentials, but based upon the power of Almighty Son of God. And I believe Jesus is reenacting this to remind him of his calling. Um, I did something similar many, many years ago now when, um, when I proposed to my wife. Um, one of our very first conversations where we were sort of truthful to one another about our, our heart's affection for one another was, uh, took place in Scenic Beach, Washington, and we were there on a ministry trip with a whole bunch of kids from the church. And I was leaving the next day, so my timing was impeccable, and I decided we should go for a walk, and I should pour out my heart to you just before I get on the plane and fly away. So that's what I did. And we sat there on the beach, and we basically shared with one another about a whole summer's worth of relationship development that was occurring. And while we were doing this, an amazing thing happened. There was a meteor shower. It was inc- I don't mean like you know a dozen or so. Like hundreds throughout the night just coming down out of the sky. It was a really special moment for the two of us. And so when a couple of years later uh, I decided to propose, we went back there. And we went back to that spot and we sat on that beach and that's where I asked Amy to marry me. And I did that because I wanted to reenact that moment where I would say we sort of first fell in love. And um, I think Jesus is doing the same thing with Peter here. You remember this moment when you sat in the boat with me and I called you to something? Let's keep going, bro. I think that's what he's doing. And so Jesus reminds Peter of something else here. I think he also reminds him that he's known. Let me show you this. Look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said this to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's just a little detail, but it's an important detail. How does Jesus address Peter? What does he call him here? Simon, Simon, son of John. Now that might seem insignificant, but there's an important thing going on. Jesus had renamed Peter after the great confession. He renamed him Cephas or Peter, which means rock. And he used his title as the basis for the ministry which would follow. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And I think it was a special nickname for Peter. I think it, it was an identity that he had among the disciples and with the Lord and how God was using him in the, in, in the kingdom of God. He was the rock. And on his testimony and all that he had said here, Christ was going to build the church. But Jesus doesn't address him as Peter or as Cephas or as the rock here. He goes back to his previous name. He calls him Simon, son of John. And I think it... It was almost as though he had stripped him of his title. It's like your mother calling you by your middle name. And I think it gripped Peter's attention. 
And I think what Jesus is doing is addressing the elephant in the room. Everybody's, the question in everybody's mind, especially on Peter's, is, is Peter good enough for God's work? Can he continue? Does he have anything ahead of him here now that he has failed as he had? And I think by reverting back to Peter's old name, Jesus is demonstrating his knowledge of Peter's turmoil and anxiety, and he's bringing that question to the focal point, and now he's going to tease out an answer to Peter's question. And so Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now remember earlier, Peter has made this specific boast that he would be willing to die for Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew gives us an additional detail that, these, that the other Gospels don't. In fact, it, it says in Matthew 6, uh, 26, 33, Peter declares, Even if all others fall away on account of you, I never will. That's his boast. Be careful making comparisons, friends. But this is what he did. And so I want to tell you that Jesus' question here, do you truly love me more than these, I think was especially painful for Peter because he put the needle right on that point of boasting. And so the question comes to us, is Jesus being cruel? Is he just being mean? Calling him by his old name, stripping him of his title and asking him this very painful question about that boast that he had made? And I would say no. Because as much as Peter would remember this prideful boast, he will also remember the prediction of Jesus that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In other words, Jesus knew full well Peter's failure even before he committed them. Peter's failures didn't surprise Jesus one bit. He knew them before he called him. And I think this is... It is as though Jesus is saying, Peter, I called you to be one of my own, knowing full well, in advance, all of the failures that you would have in your life. In fact, I even predicted them to you. And I think it's Jesus' way of demonstrating to Peter that you are known and you always have been known. And I called you to be mine, knowing full well what was ahead of you. And I think that ought to be terrifying and comforting for us at the same time. You're known to the Lord. There's nothing in your life that is hidden from him. But Jesus goes on to remind Peter that he not only was he called, not only was he known even when he was called, but that he is accepted. And this might seem kind of fairly obvious to point out, but how many times does Jesus ask Peter a question here? Three times. See any significance to that? I think so. I think Jesus is asking these driving questions to test Peter a bit, but not to test him for his failure, but to give him the occasion to pronounce his love and devotion to the Lord. It is an opportunity to be restored, not an opportunity to be pressed down. I think he asks him for each act of denial so that Peter can have an opportunity to wipe the slate clean and declare before his Lord, and before the other disciples, and for himself, he truly loves Jesus. Um, there's something else that's really significant that's going on here. You know, the first question, it's not a, easily apparent in the English, but the first question is, do you love me? And the word, the Greek word used for love there is agape. 
Uh, agape love is sort of that perfect love, that highest level of love. It's the kind of love God has for us, right? Do you agape love me? And Peter replies, I phileo love you, which is brotherly love. Philadelphia's name for this, this word, phileo. It's brotherly love. In other words, Jesus asks Peter for a big kind of love. Do you love me perfectly? Do you love me wholly? Do you love me in the way that God loves mankind? And Peter, our guy who is prone to overspeak, right, says, I love you like a brother. It's interesting. And then Jesus comes back at him again. Do you agape love me? And Peter comes back with, I phileo love you. And then the third time is fascinating, and Jesus changes his word. He says, Peter, do you phileo love me? Do you love me like a brother? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. I find that incredibly comforting. I find that to be beautiful. The last time Jesus asked the question, he changes the word. He uses Peter's word. I think it is Jesus' way of communicating to Peter, I can take even your imperfect love. I can take your broken track record. I can take the mistakes and the failures that you've made in the past. I can take your faulty love, and it's enough. And then he goes, in each one of those cases, he doesn't just say, okay, but he... He commissions Peter again. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And I think in so doing and through all of this, Jesus confirms to Peter the very special truth that he needed to hear, and that was he was still the man for the job. And I think what all of us need to hear loud and clear from this passage is that God's choice of Peter was not because of his credentials and his capability and his perfect performance and his perfect love. It was based upon the grace of Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. You were not called to be a disciple of Jesus because you had your act together. You've been called to get your act together because you've been called graciously to be a disciple of Jesus. It wasn't the quality of his love that made him good enough for God's work and It's the same with us as well. It's the grace of God and the power of God that works to very ordinary individuals like you and me. Peter would be confronted by God's grace and that grace will drive him to purer devotion than earning it ever would. Uh, And so Peter is also reminded by Jesus that there will be a cost uh, going forward. It's not all rainbows and skittles from here. It's the going's about to get rough. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, I, this is funny. I have to just tell you this as an aside. Uh, when, uh, on many Sunday mornings when Andrew's helping me put my mic on and he pins it on my collar because it's hard to reach and whatever, sometimes I quote this verse to him. <laughs> when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Well, here's the amazing thing. In just a couple of weeks, this man who couldn't stand for Christ in the courtyard when questioned by a little girl would lead 3,000 people to Christ at Pentecost. And not just 3,000 of any kind of people. It was the very people who put Jesus to death. 
It was a hostile crowd. He couldn't answer a little girl's questions comfortably in the courtyard, and now he's leading 3,000 enemies of Jesus to repent of their actions and to trust in him as their savior. Isn't that amazing? Peter would become the leader of the early church in its infancy. The one who had failed so greatly and the one who had walked away from Jesus in his hour of need would become a leader because of the grace of God in his life. This man, Peter, who always said the wrong thing at the wrong time, would go on from here to pen the inerrant words of Scripture as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And according to the church historian Eusebius, uh, this man, who again ran from persecution, would ultimately die a martyr's death. And when they went to kill him, they tried to kill him by crucifixion. And Peter, Peter's response was he requested to be crucified upside down so that he, because he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Um, it's amazing, this turnaround that, it, that was experienced in his life. What do we learn from all of this? I think every one of us in the room will wonder if we haven't already and if we aren't right now. Am I good enough for God's work? Do I have anything to offer? I love this quotation by A.W. Tozer. I have it in your handout for you. How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No tellbearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us before we knew him and called us to himself in full knowledge of everything that was against us. Isn't that good? That's some good writing. And that is the grace of our Lord. I think we learn through Peter's experience. We're not good enough for God's work in and of ourselves. If there's any good in us, it's been put there by the grace of God. And we have ministry to do because he's called us to do it.